Good morning. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Today we'll be reading from John chapter 11, verses 1 through 44, and this can be found on page 897 in your pew Bible. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you are going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they had thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and she called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you have been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved. If you would see see the glory of God. So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always would hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. 
The man who had died came out, and his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face unwrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to him, Unbind him and let him go. This is God's word. This morning we are continuing our series looking at the heart of Jesus as it's revealed in the gospel, specifically what we learn about Christ's love for us by looking at how he loves the people that he encounters through his earthly ministry in the gospel stories. Uh, this series is going to take us through January. After that, we're going to start a short series through the book of Acts, kind of an overview level, about 14 weeks. But today we are in the passage from which the, our series gets its title, See How He Loved Them. So let's pray and we'll look together at this text. Gracious Father, thank you. Uh, thank you for your love. Thank you that it is on display here uh, as we look into your word. We pray, Jesus, that you would uh, make yourself known to us, that we would see you, that we would hear you, and that your spirit would change our hearts. So be with us in Christ's name. Amen. Well, John 11 is a pretty familiar story to many of us. It's one of the most uh, kind of overtly miraculous things that Jesus does. He does a lot of miracles in the Gospels, but raising the dead is one that you won't likely forget. And so uh, it's a pretty familiar story, raising Lazarus from the grave. And Lazarus, we learn in the opening verses, uh, was the brother of Mary and Martha, the same Mary and Martha that we meet in Luke chapter 10, where, if you'll remember that story, Martha is busy serving the Lord, and Mary is kind of, you know, sitting at Jesus' feet. Martha gets mad at her for all that. This is the same family. This is their brother Lazarus, who is now uh, sick. And it's the same Mary, John also tells us, who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, which is something that'll happen in the next chapter of John, actually, in chapter 12, but the same story is recorded in Matthew and Mark's gospel. So this is a family very familiar to Jesus. Lazarus, however, is unrelated to the character of the parable in Luke 16. There's that parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Sometimes we get confused because it's the same name, thinking it's talking about the same person. The Lazarus of the parable was fictional. This man was a real historical figure, uh, the brother of Mary and Martha. Together they lived in a village called Bethany, just under two miles outside of Jerusalem. And the tragedy that they are about to face, a tragedy that we just read about, offers us another window into the heart of Jesus and what we might describe as his all-encompassing love. His all-encompassing love, a love that is ready to meet us wherever we are with all that we need. Stretching from the personal and the intimate uh, to you know, the unique circumstances of every single person's stories to the eternal and the ultimate, that which transcends all of our stories and, and brings them together into God's great eternal plan of redemption. His love is all-encompassing. And it's, it's rare today to encounter someone with that kind of all-encompassing scope to their work. 
ever since Henry Ford and others stopped using the same workers to build the entire car and instead put them on an assembly line where they only did one specific part of the car over and over, got really good at one specialized skill, our economy really hasn't looked back from that. Uh, there are very few people that could be described as generalists anymore, good at an all, having an all-encompassing uh, range to their skill. And that's really true across industries. Uh, athletes train today to become experts in a single uh, event. Even uh, you know, professors, they teach, a, they teach and, and research in, in just a tiny sliver of a single subject. That's all of the focus. And that's true even in, in biblical studies. You, you have professors who specialize not merely just in Old Testament versus New, but in single books of the Bible, such that, you know, I'm a 2 Corinthians scholar. Don't ask me anything about 1 Corinthians. I'm a 2 Corinthians scholar. We have this kind of specialization. Uh, the healthcare industry inc- is increasingly specialized today. You have surgeons who literally do the exact same procedure 12 times a day, six days a week. And that's just all that they do. Uh, Rare is the generalist who is available enough to treat you for a cold and yet skilled enough to do heart surgery. Uh, And of course, that's not a bad thing, right? It's not a bad thing that we have specialized medicine and and those kinds of things. And in most industries, it's, it's impossible to be an expert in everything but it amplifies just how remarkable it is to meet someone whose work is truly all-encompassing, who really can do everything. And that's what you find in our passage with respect to Christ's love. It, It stretches from personal and intimate to the ultimate and the eternal and everywhere in between. So if you notice the intimacy with which Jesus' relationship to Lazarus and his sisters is described. Uh, When Martha and Mary send word to Jesus that their brother is sick, look at how they describe that relationship with with their brother. Uh, Verse 3, this is how they phrase it. They say, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Not Lazarus, our brother, is ill, or Lazarus, your friend, is ill. The message they send is, he whom you love is ill. That is a remarkable description of their relationship, right? Of their friendship. And, and, and that's really the point. There's, there's a friendship here between Jesus and Lazarus. A personal intimacy. An intimacy that the narrator describes again in verse 5. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. He loved them. And it's an intimacy that others could recognize in the way that Jesus wept at Lazarus's tomb. If you look at verse 36, it says, so the Jews said, see how he loved him. There's a personal intimacy in that relationship. Jesus is the kind of doctor who is first and foremost a friend. First and foremost a friend who enjoys sharing life, who meets us where we are, whose love is not above making a house call in the middle of the night to remove a splinter. And yet, at the same time, his love is ultimate and eternal. So he's available enough to treat you for a cold, but skilled enough to do heart surgery, 
to, to remove our heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. And, and you see that when you look at the very next verses after the ones we just read. So, Lord, he whom you love is ill, verse 3, but when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So there's this intimate love, and yet there's something bigger going on here, something cosmic and eternal, something that concerns not merely the well-being of his friend, but the very glory of God being revealed in the Son. Uh, look at verses 5 and 6. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two, day, two days longer in the place where he was. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense, right? Jesus heard his friend whom he loved was sick, and so he intentionally didn't go see him, but let him die. There's, 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 a, there's a, a clash there, something that doesn't compute, something larger at work, something ultimate that we can't readily see. And again, verses 36 and 37. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Which is a very fair question. I mean, Jesus should have been able to stop this from happening. So if he loved him, why didn't he? Unless there's something bigger, more ultimate, more eternal at work. And what's truly remarkable about the all-encompassing scope of Christ's love is not simply that he's proficient in every single area, like he's really good at the personal intimate stuff and he knows when to do that, but he's really good when it's, you know, big ultimate stuff. What's really remarkable is how he takes that entire scope and he brings it together, he, the, the intimate and the ultimate, the personal and the eternal, and we see that marriage of intimate and ultimate throughout this story. First, verses 1 to 16, we see an ultimate purpose in his personal ministry. So an ultimate purpose in his personal ministry. There's, there's something transcendent. There's something larger than life at play in the intimate personal conversations and interactions that Jesus has. We already saw that, hinted at, when he responded to the news of Lazarus' death in verse 4 by saying, this illness does not lead to death, it's for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. The circumstance of a friend's illness is an occasion for the cosmic plan of God's redemption to be revealed. The intimate and the ultimate come together. Jesus does nothing that is disconnected from his greater mission to bring glory to his Father. Honor, worship, praise, the allegiance of all nations, which will be accomplished by the Son being glorified. In fact, Jesus' greatest act of love is to bring us into that glory of the Father, to, to experience, to behold and rest in, to uh, take comfort in, to depend on God in all of His perfect majesty and mercy. 
There's an ultimate purpose in that personal ministry. But this is something his disciples don't understand. When he tells them that he needs to go back to Judea uh, in verse 7, they think that is a terrible idea because they just came from Judea where at the end of chapter 10, the Jewish leaders attempted to stone Jesus for making himself equal with God, uh, which is, is interesting context because not only does it explain the, the confusion and the hesitancy of his disciples, it actually signals what makes Jesus' all-encompassing love possible. How is he uniquely able to love us with that kind of sweeping scope, personal and intimate as a friend and a companion, and yet also ultimate and eternal, pulling us into God's plan of redemption? How is that possible for one person to love us in that expansive way? Well, it's because Jesus the man is at the same time one with the Father. As he says in chapter 10, verse 30, I and the Father are one, which is not a clever way, clever way of saying that, you know, me and God are tight or that or I'm on the same page as God. Being on the same page of God doesn't get you killed. Claiming to be equal with God, that will get you killed. And that's what the Jewish leaders say. It's, it's not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. But that union of one person, fully God, fully human, that union is what makes His all-encompassing love possible. That, that divine human identity, the mystery that we just celebrated at Christmas, that God came down in the flesh, true God, true human at the same time. Because Jesus is truly human, he can relate to us. He's close enough for friendship. He's vulnerable enough to share in our grief. He's like us, like us enough to take our place in death. Because he's truly God, he's wise enough to work all things for our good and his glory He's holy enough to roar against sin and death and powerful enough to command the dead to rise. In all that he does, his personal interactions with others, there is an eternal purpose at play, one made uniquely possible by who he is as God in the flesh. And in that eternal purpose in every circumstance, that's not just true for Lazarus in this particular story. That is true for all of us. It's true for all of us, though it, it can be very hard to see that and, and sometimes impossible. Uh, some of us have had a lousy 2018. Some of us have had a rough year and uh, faced challenges that, that we never imagined and that makes us nervous for the year ahead, and we can't see how God could have possibly been at work in what we've endured or what we're still enduring. That doesn't make sense. But neither could the family of Lazarus make sense of what Jesus was doing in his delay, in his, 
what looked like a lack of care, really. But just because we don't get it doesn't mean God's not at work. And while I don't want to minimize the very real pain that many of us experience, what we see in this story is a reminder that there is no tragedy outside the scope of God's eternal plan. No tragedy outside the scope of God's eternal plan. He is always sovereign and always good at the same time, even when we don't have a category to see where where this is going and how it could work. He's always at work for the glory of God, bringing that plan of redemption to bear on the specific circumstances of our lives. And so, he has work to do in this story, even though his disciples don't get it. And he responds to their hesitance to go to Judea in two ways. First, he reminds them that as long as there's daylight, there's work to do. If you look at, at verse 9, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. So, It's Jesus' way of saying, yes, the sun is setting on my earthly ministry, and the hour of my crucifixion is coming soon, but it's not yet here. So even though it might be dangerous to go back to Judea, there's work to do. As long as there's daylight, there's work to do. There's a significant purpose to His work and to theirs. And, And then He tells them what that specific work is. Verse 11, He says, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. And of course, the disciples think when he uses the metaphor of of sleep that Lazarus is taking a nap or something like that. They don't get what the metaphor means. And so Jesus says it clearly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, this is so interesting, for your sake... I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe. I'm glad I missed it because now there's an opportunity to reveal my glory, not just to this family, but even to the disciples who are with them, so that they too can see that there's something bigger going on with Jesus and his ministry. And so they set out for Judea. And by the time they arrive, Lazarus has been in the tomb for four days. The family's gathered, they're grieving, many others have gathered with them, and what we see next in Jesus' conversation with Martha is an ultimate hope in her personal grief. Again, Jesus brings the ultimate and the intimate together. He, He provides an ultimate hope in personal grief. Verses 17 to 27. If, if you're familiar with that story of Mary and Martha from Luke 10, you won't be surprised by the different ways that they react to the situation here in John 11. Martha has this kind of take-charge personality. And so when she hears that Jesus has come, she heads out to go meet him. Meanwhile, Mary stays back seated in the house. And Martha meets Jesus with an honest personal, even desperate grief. She says to him in verse 21, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. I mean, 
What an incredible mixture of grief and faith, of honesty and, and, and desperation all brought together. She believes in Jesus' power, but she's puzzled by his absence. If you had been here, he would not have died. She believes that, but she doesn't get why he wasn't there. And yet she remains loyal. Even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, he'll do for you, even though she's still desperate. She, she runs to Jesus. And, and so notice how Jesus loves her in that moment. He loves her by gently speaking truth. Verse 23, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Your brother will rise again. That's a pretty remarkable promise, right? Uh, one, honestly, she didn't really have the category for, at least not the category to know what Jesus was talking about. If you look at her response, she's kind of underwhelmed by that comfort. Yeah, I know. I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. That's the category she's thinking in, which, you know, for us is a little bit surprising because oftentimes when we talk about the resurrection, we think exclusively of Jesus' resurrection. Uh, but the resurrection was the hope of all Israel and the entire early church. That, that was something all God's people were looking forward to, as promised in the Old Testament in places like Daniel 12. And as expressed earlier in John's gospel when Jesus says in chapter 5, 28 and 29, an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear God's voice and come out, those who've done good to the resurrection of life and those who've done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So the resurrection is for everyone. The, the day coming in the end when God would make all things new, when everything sad will come untrue, and, and that's what Martha's thinking about. Um, and that, there's real hope and real comfort in the resurrection to come. That is, it's, it's the hope that, that gets us through the day, right? It's the hope that we all look forward to in the face of death, even today. So there's real comfort in that promise of the coming resurrection, that the dead in Christ will rise. Martha understood that. She believed that. But that's not exactly what Jesus was talking about. Uh, he's about to take the power of that coming resurrection, that ultimate hope, and bring it into the personal grief and personal tragedy of the situation. Because Jesus is not simply speaking words of comfort here. He is revealing his glory. He is showing who he really is, his identity, his power, bringing ultimate hope to personal grief. Look at his declaration in verses 25 and 26. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. The tragedy that you're grieving, the tragedy that Lazarus has experienced, the greatest enemy everyone on this earth must face, Jesus says, I'm the answer to it. I'm the answer to it. I'm the resurrection 
and the life. In me, Jesus says, death does not get the final word. Because of who he is, the Christ, true God, true man, whoever believes in him, even if you die, you will live again and never die. That is an ultimate power. Jesus loves Martha by gently speaking truth to her amid her grief. And sometimes that's exactly what we need amid the tragedies and the challenges that we face, right? To be reminded of truth. It's so easy when when life falls apart to just panic, to freak out, to give way to fear, to give oxygen to the lies that we're afraid are going to come true and that dominate us and, and ultimately lead us to despair. Sometimes what we need is someone to take us by the shoulders and speak truth. Jesus is alive. He's the resurrection and the life. He's with you. There is no brokenness beyond the scope of his redemption. We don't have to be in control or have the answers or even know the way forward as long as we have Jesus. Sometimes we need that ministry of truth. So Jesus loves Martha by speaking truth, and and Martha confesses her faith in Jesus. She says in verse 27, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. Even though she doesn't quite get what that means in this moment, she believes. But as the conversation turns to Mary, Notice how Jesus takes a different approach with Mary than he did with Martha. Verses 28 to 37 show us an intimate grief over an ultimate problem. An intimate grief over an ultimate problem. So in verse 28, Martha sends for Mary. says, Jesus is here. He wants to see you. And and Mary comes and and with her a, a cohort of mourners who think she's going to the tomb and so they're they've got her back they're with her and and listen to what mary says to jesus when she sees him verse 32 lord if you had been here my brother would not have died sound familiar it's the exact same thing that martha said lord if you had been here my brother would not have died Two sisters suffering the same loss, expressing the same words, and yet notice how Jesus responds differently to Mary. So unlike Martha, whom he gently corrects and instructs, he's virtually speechless with Mary. Look at verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping, And the Jews who had come with her also weeping. He was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. Whereas Jesus loved Martha by 
by gently speaking truth. Here he loves Mary simply by weeping with her. He enters into her grief. He shares in her sorrow. His love is all-encompassing. It's ready to meet us wherever we are with all that we need. Tim Keller summarizes this scene beautifully. He says, Jesus gives Martha what we would call the ministry of truth. That is what she needs most at that moment. He sort of grabs her by the shoulders with truth. Listen to me. Don't despair. I'm here. Resurrection. Life. That's what I am. Because of his divine identity, he is high enough to point her to the stars. Then, when he gets to Mary, he gives her what we would call the ministry of tears. That's what she needs most at that moment. Because of his human identity, he's low enough to step into her sorrow with complete sincerity and integrity and just weep with her. It's really beautiful and amazing, isn't it, to see that all-encompassing love. And again, that's not just true for Mary. It's true for us as well. If Jesus is your Savior, He is present with you right now. He understands your tears, and He shares them. There is no grief beyond his empathy or comprehension. Hebrews tells us that that we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And, and not only can we take comfort in Christ's ministry, both of truth and tears, but we can reflect that all-encompassing love to others. If every trial or tragedy in life is an opportunity to know Jesus more deeply, then every tragedy of those around us is an opportunity to show Jesus, to help them see His love and His glory. Sometimes that means taking up the ministry of truth, of pointing them gently to the hope of Christ that changes everything. Sometimes that means sitting with them in the ministry of tears and not even saying a word, just being with them in their grief. And we need wisdom to know when to do what, right? But God will supply that wisdom as we trust Him to reflect the love of Christ through truth or tears. So Jesus enters into Mary's sorrow. But He doesn't stop there. As several commentators point out where Where most translations say that Jesus was deeply moved in verse 33 and and verse 38, that's a polite way of saying he was really ticked off. He was bellowing with anger, outraged in spirit. 
as Paul Miller describes, he was steaming like a boiling pot whose lid is about to blow off. His anger and agitation boiled over into a stream of tears. Jesus was angry, not at Mary or Martha or even at the crowds. He was angry at death and its effect on those whom he loves. Because death is not part of the beauty of life. It's part of the brokenness that love seeks to mend. And so Jesus reveals this intimate grief toward an ultimate problem. The problem that plagues everyone, that spoils everything of which none of us are immune. The problem of death. Death was not part of God's good design. It came into the world as a result of of human rebellion against God as a a just and holy judgment on sin. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Death is the ultimate problem of death owes to the primordial and perennial problem of sin. It's primordial in that it comes from the fall, from the very beginning of the story, but it's perennial in that it's not just something that affects everyone, it's something that everyone is guilty of. We all do it, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so therefore, death reigns in a fallen world, and that angers Jesus. That ticks him off. That's not the way it's supposed to be. And so, as he enters into Mary's grief and the grief of all of those who are mourning, his spirit roars with anger at death, and then he does something about it. He tangibly helps. He reveals his glory and his unique ability to undo this ultimate problem. He reveals the eternal power of His intimate love. And that's what we see in 38 to 44. The eternal power of His intimate love. Verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, roaring in anger, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he's been dead four days. Again, Martha, Martha believes in Jesus, but she still doesn't have a category for what he's about to do. So Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around so that they may believe that you've sent me. Jesus gives us a a window into this intimate relationship he has had from all eternity. And when he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out 
his hands and his feet bound with linen strips, his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Jesus doesn't just roar against the problem of death. He does something about it. He reveals his eternal power through his intimate love in raising Lazarus from the dead because he and he alone is the resurrection and the life. And he will do something about death for all of us. For all of us. The point of raising Lazarus is not to say that any Christian who gets sick is going to be healed in this life or any Christian who dies will be raised in this life. God can do that. He may, may do that. But the point here is to redirect us to the source of ultimate hope amid our personal tragedies, our personal trials, and to declare in no uncertain terms that Jesus alone holds the keys of life and death. If you want in on the resurrection to come, if you want to enjoy eternal life with God in heaven and the glory of the new heavens and new earth to come, there's only one way to do it. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. He loves us with an all-encompassing love because, because He's truly God. He's wise enough to work all things for our good and His glory. He's holy enough to roar against sin and death, and He is powerful enough to command the dead to rise, to deal with the ultimate problem. But because He is truly human, He's close enough to be a friend. He's vulnerable, vulnerable enough to share our grief, and He's like us enough to take our place in death which is the ultimate expression of his love and where this story is ultimately going. You know, for Jesus to truly conquer death, it means that he has to deal with the root problem of death. He has to deal with sin. Remember, death's not part of the plan. It entered because of sin. And so the only way to deal with death, to undo it or defeat it, is to defeat sin. And there's only one way to defeat sin, for a righteous substitute to take our place. Someone who's not guilty of sin willingly taking the punishment for us so that God can deal justly with sin in punishing it fully and yet mercifully with sinners forgiving them completely. There's only one way for that to happen, and that is for Christ to take our place. Verse Peter 2.24 says of Jesus that He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. That's where this story is going. That is what Jesus' all-encompassing love will require. to meet us wherever we are with all that we need, all that we need, including a Savior. So when you think back to the beginning of the story, the disciples were not crazy to be worried about the danger waiting for them in Judea. 
Because that's exactly what happens as a result of, of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. The story continues in verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? And their conclusion, verse 53, So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. That was the result of Jesus raising Lazarus from the grave. Of course, Jesus knew that, right? There's no surprise there. That was part of the plan, to reveal his glory. That was a necessary part of the plan, to redeem the world. As Keller summarizes, Jesus knew that if he raised Lazarus from the dead, the religious establishment would try to kill him. And so he knew that the only way to bring Lazarus out of the grave was to put himself in the grave. He knew that the only way to interrupt Lazarus' funeral was to summon his own. If he was going to save us from death, he was going to have to go to the cross and bear the judgment we deserve. And that's exactly what he was willing to do and ultimately did in love. And not just for Lazarus, but for you and me. For your friends and your neighbors, for your parents and your children, for your colleagues and your classmates. His love is all-encompassing. It is for everyone, ready to meet all of us, wherever we are, with everything we need. And so may we hold fast to the love of Christ wherever we find ourselves, in whatever situation. There is no tragedy outside the scope of his eternal plan. There is no brokenness beyond the scope of his redemption. There is no grief beyond his empathy or comprehension. In Jesus, every trial is an invitation to know him more personally and intimately, and to see his glory revealed, his redemption revealed on an ultimate and eternal scale. And every challenge of those around us is a chance to show that love to others as well. So may we not only cling to that love in Christ, may we be ready to love others wherever they are with all that they need. Not by becoming or replacing Jesus, but by embodying his compassion and taking up his message of truth, pointing them to the person, to Jesus himself, who alone is the Savior, whether that's through the ministry of truth or the ministry of tears or the ministry of tangible help. May we love others so well that, that when, uh, when others are, are looking and seeing what happens, that they might be able to say, see how they loved them, just like Jesus. May that be true among us.
It's only possible through Christ. Let's pray. Lord, may we never lose our awe at your all-encompassing love. Thank you that you are close enough to hear us, kind enough to be our friend, compassionate enough to weep with us, yet holy enough to deal with sin, righteous enough to take our place, powerful enough to undo all that's wrong in this world and faithful enough to finish that work in the end. Lord, thank you for your love, and I pray that 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 love would be real to us. Whatever each one of us is experiencing, we're in a season of joy. May we praise you for it. If we're in a season of deep trial and pain, may we cling to you. May we recognize wherever we are, your love is for us. And your love is for those around us. May we see the love of Christ. May we rest in it. In Jesus' name, amen.